really what it comes down to is understanding some of the stories of the individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines that have sacrificed. Realize the kind of attributes they bring that only makes the whole team better. I served in uniform not because I was underprivileged, uh, rather it was because of conviction of love of country and the American way of life. If I hadn't gone through a lot of the traumatic things in Iraq, Afghanistan, just even at home, probably would not have made it through that night. No, somebody didn't need me, but somebody just took the time to care. For me, the most memorable events I've ever seen involved the United States military. No matter where they were called upon, no matter where their duties would take them, they acted swiftly, without any hesitation, or mental reservations to answer our nation's call to action. Welcome back to this episode of the Patriot Podcast. I'm Chris Obermeyer, and I have the privilege of being joined today by Evan Paparis to talk about his time in the U.S. Army Special Forces. In part two of this interview, we'll talk about Evan's military transition into family life. With that, Let's jump right in and learn more about Evan's incredible story of perseverance. So briefly, you spoke about deployments. So, and, and you spoke about, you know, gave us uh, some insights on where you were. But when we talk about deployments, I think majority of people don't understand, one, length of deployment, duration. Two, but there's workups into the deployment. Yeah. So maybe talk about that a little bit of what it's like, you know, okay, tenure and what all is on the front end of it leading up into these deployments? So for conventional deployments, typically tend to be longer. So my two deployments to Iraq with 101st were 12 months and 14 months. 14 months was very long. I did not like that, uh, but that's what we were doing at the time. My, my deployments for special forces tend to be shorter, but more frequent. So my deployments were two months, four months, six months, and four months. The workup for any deployment, whether you're conventional or special operations, Generally, you tend to do individual training. Like, so like, if I know I'm deploying in a year, first couple of months I'm gonna focus on individual skills, shooting, uh, go to any of these specialty schools or, or these concepts that I, I mentioned about kind of tying that into your mission set. You focus on your individual skills, and then as the deployment gets closer, you end up going into bigger and bigger groups. So if you're in a conventional unit, you'll, go, you'll start doing team training with four people, then squad training with nine people, then uh, platoon training with 30 people, into company training with like 130 people. Uh, for SF, we don't have as much of a, we don't have to go as many levels. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we might go individual for longer and then team training or split team training for a little bit and then team training and then that'll be it. Uh, typically before you go on a deployment, you'll do one, uh, we call it FMP, full mission profile. Uh, the army, the big conventional army, they, they use things like NTC, the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California, mm -hmm. or they use Fort Polk, Louisiana, the J, JRTC. Uh, as their culmination exercise. So ideally, you do a, about a month before you go anywhere, you do a big mission, and it kind of checks all the blocks, make sure you're good on all the things you would need to use for the deployment, and that's your final workup, and then you typically take a little bit of leave, and then you'll deploy. Um, and then while you're deployed, again, it really depends on where you're going and what your mission set is, what you'll be doing, right? So for my Iraq deployments, again, with 101st, I mean, we, were, we worked basically seven days a week, and, uh, you know, some days we'd work a very little amount of time and I'd sleep 12 hours and other days we wouldn't sleep at all. You know, it, it just, cause you, you make a plan and then the enemy gets a vote, right? right so if the, right. if the enemy wants to keep you out all night by shooting at you, I guess you're staying out all night, <laughs> right. right? So the schedule is very like, 
the pendulum swings wildly back and forth. Hmm. Uh, but on deployments, we would watch a lot of movies, play video games, just hang out. And uh, some, that's some of my best times in the military because it's just very, it's weird for a lot of civilians, but, you know, it's, it's just a very simple life. Right. I worry about my job. I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing. Right. I don't have to worry about what I'm eating. That's whatever the chow hall is making. And you just go about and you adjust to whatever the new threat level is, right? So, like, I could die in my car driving mm -hmm. to work. Right. Um, and I accept that, but I, and I still drive to work every day. And mm -hmm. when you're on deployment, it's like, well, I could get blown up driving down the street, but, you know, I'm going to pay attention and I hope that doesn't happen. Right. Say a little prayer and we'll, we'll just kind of adjust to that new normal. Absolutely. <clears throat> you know, I've said that often. You know, I always say when you talk about family, you know, it was easy for me being deployed for all the reasons that you just identified. But, you know, the family back home, it's a much different story. Yes. Yeah. And we can, we can dive into that a little bit more in a minute. But, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. So on your deployments, did you ever have any opportunities to work with some other elite groups? And if so, you know, who yeah, were I, they? And uh, With the 101st, I actually, we, we did a QRF for some special operations units, uh, Ranger Regiment. Um, we had an SF, on my first point, we had an SF team that lived in our compound of about 100 people. Um, so that's another reason I went SF, right? Because I had daily interaction with these uh -huh. guys, and I was like, oh, I like what they're doing. Uh, and then I, I worked with some other government agencies and some of my other deployments. Um, it was good experiences. I, you know, I think, I think when people talk negatively about other special operations units or other government agencies, mm -hmm. I think most of the times they're looking at them through the wrong lens, right? Every unit is specifically designed for a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. So if I've got a hammer and I'm trying to put a screw in, the hammer's not the best tool. Right. The hammer can probably get the screw in. Yep. It's not going to go in very pretty, right? right? So I think sometimes when we, when we critique other special operations units or other government agencies, a lot of times they're not quite being used for the purpose that they were designed for. Sure. Uh, so all my, all my experiences were positive. Um, do I think special forces are the best ones? I do. Because well, I'm biased. Because <laughs> I'm special forces. Yeah. That, th what's, in, what's cool about special forces is they are, to me, they are the highest level group that does a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So we're, there are units in the military who specialize in direct action. That is all they do. Right. Uh, and there's units that specialize in intelligence collection. And there's units that specialize in, like, airfield seizures. Mm -hmm. We do a little bit of everything. And I like that um, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type thing. Yeah, almost like the Swiss Army knife. Yeah, yeah. A lot of different tools you could use at your disposal. Right. But I think the cool thing, go back to the deployment setting, is that no matter what, right, no matter what branch you're in, no matter what you're doing, everybody's on the same team. And I think that was the neatest thing, right, when you mm. talk about a sense of brotherhood and one common goal and objective, there's nothing better than a deployed environment. I mean, you can yes. razz each other. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. But at the end of the day, we're all in it together when we get the job done. And how people, you know, interact and, and provide assistance, it seems like seamlessly. Um, that's the cool thing. And I thought that was just so neat, you know, and I enjoyed that. I think especially, you know, you talk about the compounds. You know, once you finally make it into the, the cool kids club, and if they invite you into the fold, yeah. it's interesting. It never uh, failed at either the SF teams, like the 10 Special Forces Group, or some of the SEALs of what they can get from the states. Yeah. Their supply chain was much, different. much different than different. what I was privy to. You know, you, that, you gotta learn how to do that for unconventional warfare, right? So if you're behind <laughs> enemy lines, you gotta know how to get things in that are not supposed to be there. Yeah, so absolutely. We use those skills wherever we need to. <laughs> just, just leave it at that. Roger that, no, that was great. Let's talk a little bit about 
So we talked, we spoke about the workups, but one thing too, I think, you know, and you've done this throughout your career is overcoming adversity. But in particular, when we talk about boots on ground in a wartime hostile environment, mm. and you mentioned too that you, know, you lose people, things don't go right. You lose comms inevitably, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, exfil's not there on time, whatever, no air support, you name it. So for you, you know, how have you overcome those challenges? You know, what did you have to do to get past uncertainty, um, things like that? A couple of different methods. One of them is I mentioned the planning course. Part of the planning course is when you when you're doing like a a big mission, you do contingency planning. So like if what happens if one person gets shot? What happens if two people get shot? How many people can I lose before I have to cancel the mission? Right. So the idea is you, you make a lot of those decisions when you're sitting in a room and it's peaceful and you can think through the logical consequences. And then when it, something like that happens downrange, you just default to your chart that you made that tells you what the next step is. Okay, we did that, we talked about that already. So we're doing X, Y, and Z. And we already have buy-in because everyone was in the room when we discussed it. So contingency planning is one of them. Two is don't be the victim, right? So like you can't control everything. There's a lot of things you can control and you should control those things. The things that you can't control, you just don't worry about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you, you know, you you stack the odds in your favor because that's going to give you the highest probability of success. You can't get to 100, right. but you can, you can start stacking them up and get close to 100. And you just kind of, your mindset and your attitude, you got to be flexible and adaptable. Mm -hmm. So when, when things go wrong, again, it's just kind of unemotional decision making. It's like, sure. okay, well, all right, well, that, that did not go well. What is our next course of action? And, you know, as a leader, as a team leader, as a platoon leader, company commander, um, if I panic, it makes people below me panic. So right. I was always very, like, monotone. Um, we got hit with an IED once, and my, my squad leader, he's like, he's, he's like, you sounded like you were calling in and placing an order, like, from McDonald's. He's like, mm -hmm. there was no emotion in your voice when you called in to check on us. I was like, yeah. It's like I didn't want to make anyone else panic. Right. You know. Um, That's, you know, a classic case there, I think. You know, to add to it is to be present, be in the moment, yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, focus on solutions. If you could put ninety percent of your energy towards solutions, you're gonna do you're gonna do fine. And then rely on your training, right? Yes, huge. <sighs> I mean, you get a lot of reps in, and you just go off instincts, and you're making decisions, and yeah, and just remaining calm, especially over comms, right? Yes. Because if you hear somebody say, hey, we're taking fire, and, and they're screaming, and, yeah, you amp everybody else up. Right. You'll uh, make the guy who's sitting in the CP in the <laughs> command post panic. If you're panicking, I'm not even kidding. Right? They'll, they'll oh, get yeah. flustered, and then they won't be able to help you. Yeah. Yeah, I used to work the talk on one of my deployments, Tactical Operations Center. Yeah. And I'm doing imagery and whatever else, right? And then people are getting a little too amped up, and it's like, okay, hey, let's... Let's tone it down here. Let's step one. Let's run the chill, the drill, right. the checklist, yep. and just start going down the list. Wrapping up on the deployment piece, you know, I mentioned earlier, when we're downrange, it's easy. You focus on the mission yourself. You eat. You work out. That's right. Maybe harass your teammates a little bit. Have some fun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but back home, yeah. You know, if you have a family, you know, everything happens, right? Car breaks down. Air conditioner goes out. Kid gets sick. All of this stuff. Maybe talk a little bit about that, about the family side and, and how you've been successful, you know, and yeah. just keeping everything together. 
I'm gonna have to give most of the credit to my wife. My wife, uh, strong woman, and she's the one who really holds it down. Um, the I'm not the when I, when I do on deploy deployments, I I get very I'm good at compartmentalizing stuff and really focusing. Uh, so I didn't call my wife that often. Like, they, I had friends who would like call their spouses like every night, and I didn't like to do that because if I missed a night, I, it would send her into a panic. It's like, what's wrong? Why didn't he mm. call? So I call like, and I didn't have anything to talk about because I couldn't talk about details of work sure. uh, due to classification issues. So I was just be like, here's the eight bootleg movies I've saw saw in the last two weeks, <laughs> right? <laughs> have you seen any of them? She's like, no. I was like, oh. So I'd run out of stuff to talk about real quick. So I used to call like once every two weeks, uh, which is not frequent and probably too little. Um, but my wife is strong. My, uh, I didn't have kids for most of my deployment, so that was that was mm. very helpful because. My wife's a grown woman, and she kind of knew what she was getting into when she married me. And I, when we met, I was like, I'm going to the Army. You know that. And uh, my plan is to go to special operations and go as far as I can go in that. And then, are you in for the ride? And she was like, yes. Yeah. So I was like, all right. Um, so I, I got a really strong, independent wife. And there's a, you, have, you have a lot of trust, right? Because I spend right. a lot of time not around her, and she spends a lot of time not around me. And if you don't have that trust, that relationship's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, since then, I've had two kids. Uh, I've got an eight-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son now. My daughter was uh, six months on one of my, my last deployment I went to. And when I came back, she was a year old. And we'd been FaceTiming. This is not, not that FaceTime was around at that point. When I first, my first couple deployments, it was just phone calls, right? Um, and when I got back, she wouldn't let me hold her. Mm. She was crying. My one-year-old daughter who had been FaceTime, who's like my, who I think is literally the best thing in the entire world. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think it might be time to start taking more training slash desk jobs. Um, as, you, as you get up in the military, they start putting you behind a desk. Mm-hmm. You know, and if, if you're not going to put me out there to do my job, you're going to put me behind a desk. I'd rather sit behind a desk in America and then be with my family right. than to sit behind a desk in, you know, Jordan or wherever country mm-hmm. we are. So I ended up choosing a lot more uh, desk side, state side jobs. Uh, for the later half of my career. Sure. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, a big, big deal. We talk about reintegration. That's real. And I think it's a, it's a challenge that many of us have faced and encountered. And many people, men and women, still face today yeah. coming back off deployments, right? Because especially, I can only imagine from your seat and the things that the, the level of classification that you were working with, the missions that you were operating uh, within, can't say too much so you come home right and it's like what do you say right you know? yeah you know what what are those conversations like with your significant other it's pretty tough it is and talk about the the community and the the bonds you build with your brothers right like some of my humor is gallows humor it's not my wife doesn't think those are funny <laughs> when i'm talking about like bodies i'm like and then this happened she's like this is terrible i was like I, we thought it was really funny. Okay, I will not tell that story anymore. You know, like, yeah, and then we've gone to, since, you know, we've married a while, we've, we've gone to military museums, and we'll see something that I had found in, in Iraq. So I'll start oh. telling a story, and she'd be like, I'm really glad you didn't tell me this until now. Wow. Like, um, you know, I, I, think, I think the stories where we almost die are funny because we, because we all came out. Right, it's like the you know it's all fun and games till someone loses an eye. Right, I think that this, for me that describes combat perfectly. Like when everyone comes out fine, I think those are great stories, regardless of how like how high the stakes were. Sure. Um, obviously, when people get hurt, right, that changes the experience, and I sure have a very does. negative perception of that. But yeah, uh, 
Absolutely. So with that, any stories that come to mind that you're willing to share? Mission, patrol, things go wrong, you know, and everybody survived. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll give you the one that gives me the most, um, the one I've had the most nightmares about, um, which is actually surprising. So we were, we were going on a, this is the 101st, we were going on a, a raid. So I'm in the second vehicle, my lead vehicle's up front. Uh, we're doing blackout drive, so we've mm -hmm. got no headlights on. And uh, we're going to hit a target just south of the base. And the lead vehicle takes the turn too wide and drives into a canal. Okay. Uh, four people in the vehicle, they hold five. Vehicle's upside down and it's filling with water. Mm. My driver screams roll over. So I pop the door and I go sprinting out and I start ripping off my uh, body armor. And you know, we talked about you'll, you gotta train the way you fight and you'll do what you do in training. And I remember I strip my body armor off and I start taking off my knee pads. Like I can't swim with my knee pads. Just cause in my head all I was like, get all of your equipment off because you yep. need to get jump in there and save people. So I strip my body armor, I take off one knee pad and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and I jump onto the vehicle, which is now three quarters like submerged in water. And I try to open the door, except the door's upside down, which means when I pull the handle, I'm pulling it in the wrong direction. It was a Humvee? Yeah, it's a Humvee. Because okay, yep. the handles aren't like normal Correct. door handles. They're yep. like, you push them up or down to open the door. So it's, because it's inverted, I'm pulling it wrong. Mm -hmm. So I, I go to pull it, it doesn't open. I try it again. And I'm essentially doing a single rep max deadlift against an immovable object at that point. Um, and when I reach down for the third pull, the door pops open like a, like a half inch. I stick my fingers in, open, and all four guys are in the only pocket of air left in the vehicle. Oh, wow. And we pull them all out of the vehicle. My squad leader jumped in the water to try to get them, access them from the bottom. The canals in Iraq are not the cleanest. They are sewage, mm -hmm. the black water. So my squad leader is again, speaking of Bialik, my squad leader is sw swimming in sewage, yeah. right? So we get out, we put, put overwatch over the vehicle, and the, the target house is about a block and a half away. So we all load up into the other two vehicles, again, continuing the mission, keep an eye on the vehicle that's now stuck, and we go hit the target, it was a dry hole. But my squad leader, we kick in the door, right, and we clear the room, there's no bad guys there. And my squad leader's like, hold on a second. Right, and he throws up, and we're like, get a hold of yourself, man, what's wrong with you? Like, the man, is, the man has swallowed human feces, and we're, we're like yelling at him to stop being a, you know, I'm not going to say the word. Right. We're like, pull yourself together, right? And we, we still did the mission. We, we, we still accomplished the mission. We, were, we still make fun of uh, Mario, the squad leader, to this day. I saw him a couple of months ago, and I made fun of him again. It was great. Um, we, and then we recovered the vehicle afterwards. Oh, but the thing that was scary, to me, the scariest part was, like, if someone shoots at me, I can shoot back. Right. Or shoots at my guys, we can shoot back. We can call an air support, right? I can't stop water. I can't kill water, yeah. right? And it was filling up, and I, I legitimately thought <laughs> I had four guys drowning, and I, I couldn't get them out. And when I woke up the next morning, I was sore from the, from the base of my, my head down through my hamstrings because I had deadlifted that door. Oh, I mean, my. adrenaline, right? Like, sure. you're 100. It was everything I had oh, um, to get the door open, but because they were, I didn't had unlatched it properly because um, I've never tried to open a Humvee door while it was upside down. Wow. Uh, I, did not pull, I did not pull it in the right direction. But, uh. but I go back to, once again, training, the importance of training, and you can't underestimate it, because I'm sure you've been through it before where guys just blow it off. Right. Like, whatever. You know, why we got to do this? And same deal, right? You're clearing buildings and things like that, right? 
guy is not taking it seriously, it becomes a problem sometimes. Yeah. And there was a couple of small decisions we made. There was a fifth person in the vehicle. I don't think everyone would have survived. If we were wearing seatbelts, I don't think everyone would have survived. So MRAPs are different, right? Because MRAPs were bigger, and this people were dying from getting bounced around the inside after they right. exploded, after right. like an IED went off. Mm -hmm. But Humvees were smaller. You're kind of stuck in there. So we, we didn't wear seatbelts because that was uh, based off lessons learned from previous missions. And we didn't com we call it combat locking the doors, where essentially it's like a secondary lock. If we had combat locked the doors, I don't think, I don't think people would have gotten out. Isn't that something? And they, they gave us like these little like air bottles at one point. Uh, I think we had one of them in the vehicle. But if, we if they would have fought over that instead of trying to get to the air pocket, I think, again, I think they would have died. Or if they would all would have lost their composure. Sure. Right? I wasn't in the vehicle, but uh, yeah. That, so I, I used to have reoccurring uh, nightmares about drowning or my guys drowning. And, um, and that's horrible. Yeah. And we later on in the deployment, at one point, we had to drive over this, the sketchiest bridge I've ever seen. I mean, like, lots of wood with, like, you know, man, literally a man-made bridge. And I remember we, we got everyone out of the vehicle, stripped every, like I took the driver, he just put on his helmet, and we all got out of the vehicle, and we drove across one by one, and we had, like, safety divers on the side, right? So, again, I learned, learned from that lesson. It didn't collapse, but I was, I was pretty convinced it was, I was going for a swim that day as well. Mm, but, mm, um, mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story. It's good that you can say you're past that now. Yeah. Not have to. I still don't like prolonged breath holding. I got some more training. I've, I've blacked out at the bottom of a pool twice. So, for so a part now, of that happened to have been through dive training? That was going through dive training. Yeah. So. Which is one of the toughest in the military, I believe. Yeah. That's it. That Army dive school is a beast from what I hear. The washout rate's pretty high. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of them. So. And what did you, let's well, just go with it. You know, yeah. what did you find most challenging with it, you know, when you get into that dive school? Uh, it was just, uh, you know, if you're used to scuba, I'm comfortable scuba diving. I've got like a PADI basic certification. Uh, that's not the problem. The, the train up for it is more like free diving, if you're familiar with the sport of free diving, I'm which not. is basically prolonged breath holds. Okay. So free diving for sport, typically they go to depth and they basically go see how deep you can go before you ascend or they go for a distance underwater or they do various tests underwater. So a lot of uh, dive training is getting you used to that. So there's like a 50 meter underwater swim where you have to go under, swim down to the end of a pool and come back. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that's not too bad once you kind of build the reps and training. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of other uh, you go to the bottom of the pool and tie knots, and then they, they do things like uh, make you do exercise and then dive under, so now your heart rate's high. Sure. So the, 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 and the logic behind it is if you can do this stuff under stress with a high heart rate, when you're in a dive mission as it relates to combat, you'll be able to calmly think through and do, the, do mm -hmm. the, whatever, the, whatever the task may be. So during, uh, once during train-up, I blacked out after, as I was ascending, so I was only out for a couple of seconds, and one of my teammates pulled me up. And I was like, what happened? He's like, you went out. And I was like, you sure? He's like, yeah, you were like a limp noodle just floating to the bottom of the pool. And I was like, oh. Uh, and then the other one was actually at dive school. Uh, we were, again, you have your weight belt on and your fins, and they make you swim, which is very exhausting. The trick is people want to stay vertical because you want your head out of the water, but I can't breathe out of the top of my head. Right. right? So like you sound to stay horizontal and just get breathe out of the side of your mouth there. Uh, but we dove down and had to like put our equipment down in a nice organized fashion and then you come up. And I went down organizing my equipment and my heart, I remember my heart rate like just pounding and I was like, I was like, 
And then I was like, all right, time to ascend. And I start coming up. And I remember being like panicky. And then right before I went out, I was like, eh, you know, I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then it was like, Ooh, like the <laughs> blackness creeps in. And I just go out and I went down to the pile at the bottom of the pool. And uh, someone jumped in and pulled me out, put me on oxygen. I thought I was at home with my wife. I woke up on the side of the pool in Key West, and I was like, where the heck? He's like, do you want to quit? I was like, yeah, I want to. In my head, I'm like, of course I want to quit. I was unconscious at the bottom of the pool 10 seconds ago. And uh, I was like, no? And he's like, good, get back in formation. I was like, I am an idiot. And I got back in formation, and uh, we did a couple more days. But it, it, psychologically, I wasn't as comfortable getting close to the line. Sure. And we, we, we had to do a thing called... Uh, one-man competency. So you put on a blacked-out mask, and they pull the regulator out of your mouth, mm -hmm. and they tie it behind you, and you have to untie it and put it back in your mouth. And I was still a little bit shaken up from the couple days prior, and I couldn't pass the one-man competency when I was there. And due to Army regulations, you're not supposed to be on air in a training environment unless you're, like, at the schoolhouse mm. or you had, like, the correct certified people there. Long story short, it becomes very difficult to practice that. And for me personally, I could not do a lot of the dive tasks without a lot of practice. Like the only reason I could do well at dive school is because I, I practiced a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't, they weren't, essentially wasn't allowed to practice the one thing I failed at. So I ended up not going back. So it remains, uh, I don't, I mean, I, I don't like failing at things. I'm, sure. I'm still like, I'm still upset that well, I failed. I, I can sense you know? that. <laughs> but you know, again, it is what it is. And uh, you know, I, I did learn a couple of like really valuable lessons. And I learned, uh, you know, again, the ability to push myself to the line. I also learned like, you know, you, you won't die, you'll black out first, right? If right. You, if you push hard enough. Right. Um, yeah. If you're, I, you should not train free diving or dive school stuff by yourself because there's a very real prob possibility yeah. that you black out and if no one's there to pull you. Right. Like the two times happened to me, you know. Then, and this is also after the rollover incident. So, like, I already got some bad <laughs> water memories, but. What an incredible story. This completes part two of our three-part interview with Evan. In part three, We'll discuss Evan's hobbies outside of the military, including being on Ninja Warrior and how he keeps himself busy in his free time. It's very interesting to learn about how his military training surfaces in so many aspects of his life and is a toolkit he always has with him for guidance on leadership, problem solving, and perseverance. You don't want to miss this one. Thank you for joining us today on the Patriot Podcast. Have a great day. Yeah.